All right, so a couple things coming up as we get close to the end now. And final exam is, what, less than a month away now, I can say? Um, homework number four is due a week from today. That'll be the uh, 20th of November. And then exam four will be the 25th on the Monday of Thanksgiving week. And lecture day will be on the Wednesday of that day. So if you're going to have to miss that, if you're traveling, you're, you'll miss a lecture day, not an exam in a lab. So we'll do the exam in the lab on Monday. And then the solar project is due uh, December 2nd, right after the break. And I will be going over that next week. That's why I'm trying to get a little bit ahead in lecture this week. Uh, we covered chapter 25 last time. So I'm actually gonna do 26 today before lab or as much of 26 as I can get through. And then next week, I'll try to get through to 20, through 26 and 27, which is what we're scheduled. And we should be on pretty good track for getting through everything uh, in time there for you. So the only other things coming up, I mean, we've got almost everything done, the solar project. I mean, the big points that are left in the class are the solar project at 145 and the final at 100. That's like 200 and almost 250 of the remaining points, which is only a little over 300. So a few attendance points and homework, et cetera. There's not, and a couple labs is about all that's, that's left in there. All right, questions? All righty. Well, get our picture. Come on. There we go. Picture for today. And this is taken two days ago, and I showed the live feed in class as the uh, transit was going on uh, during that time. Uh, this is the transit of Mercury, so this is actually a close-up of the surface of the sun. Um, looking at, and if you look at all the speckled pattern, is the granulation. If you remember when we talked about the sun, that is the convective currents in the sun. So we're seeing the convection below the surface of the sun pulling material up and then welling, uh, welling up and then sinking back down. So it heats up from below, rises to the surface, and then sinks back down. And there we do have good old Mercury blocking out a small portion of the sun's light. Uh, if you remember when we talked about planets outside our solar system, this is one of the ways we detect them. When they pass in front of their star, they block a tiny fraction of that light, but enough that it's detectable so that we can actually detect planets this way when they happen to pass in front of their stars. So it's one of the ways, one of the ways we're going to be able to do that. If you missed the transit of Mercury, you're in better luck than if you missed the one of Venus back in 2012. Um, the next one will be 13 years from today. It's actually 13 years exactly from today. November the 13th of 2032 will be the next one. However, you've got to travel. It won't be visible from this part of the world. It'll occur in nighttime for us. So you have to travel for that one. You've got another few decades, another decade or so after that to get one that would be visible from North America. All right, questions? Before we move a little further out into galaxies, which is what we're talking about. And last time we went over, I went through our galaxy and I actually have a little lab for you to do, which is based on that, doing a few little measurements and. Uh, to get some information on our galaxy, which is what we're going to look at afterwards. Now we're going to move out and look into the universe of galaxies, what other types of galaxies are out there. So the first thing I'll be looking at is the different types 
of galaxies that exist. Now, we've known about galaxies for a long time. We know that galaxies were there, um, but we, can, we didn't really know that they were galaxies until about 100 years ago, a little less than 100 years ago, when this gentleman, Edwin Hubble, actually figured out that the stars that he saw in Andromeda were actually Cepheid variables, meaning that it had to be something, and he could determine the distance and found out that it was outside of our own galaxy. So he was able to determine that. And you'll recognize his name if you hear about Hubble Space Telescope. Well, it was named after Edwin Hubble for his classification. Well, that wasn't the only thing he did. He also classified different types of galaxies. Okay. That's annoying. I'm trying to see what it's getting any interaction there from something. Well. That may be, I don't know. It's trying to save. Or it thinks there's something touching the board. See if it stays away. Well, we'll do our best. <laughs> so, okay. So what we have is he classified them based on their appearance. That's going to be very frustrating. <laughs> I'm going to try. Let's give it a second here. Let me switch out that and switch it back. Let me see if somebody's trying to use the board next door. Maybe he's picking up interference. You can check and see if there's. That's really strange. I didn't know if they start, their class started yet. Okay, now it seems to be. Well, we'll see how long it holds. So, we classify galaxies based on how they look, on their appearance. Number the, okay. Well, it's holding now. We'll keep our fingers crossed that it won't get too bad. Uh, he classified them based on their appearance. This is kind of how we first classified stars. We, looked, we didn't classify on how the stars appeared, but on their spectra. So, we classified simply on, their appear, uh, on, their, on how they looked. So what he classified, there were two primary groups. There were elliptical galaxies and spiral galaxies. And the spiral galaxies were divided into, is it me? <laughs> spiral galaxies are divided into two groups. There were the regular spirals up on one arm and the barred spirals down on the other. And the ellipticals, there's just one classification. So this is kind of what's called his tuning fork diagram because you have one line of kind of like a tuning fork going out there. So we had a couple different ones. And I'm going to go over the different types and what they mean uh, as we go through the rest of this section. But we have ordinary spirals up here, which have one type of classification. Um, we use a capital S for spiral. Wow, something's wrong there. How does we do something that makes sense, right? Astronomically speaking, usually it's all backwards or you know, why is it not a K for spiral or something? That's an S for spiral. And then the A, B, C tell us how big the bulge is and how spread out the spiral arms are. So if you've got wide open spiral arms, it's one. If you've got real close spiral arms, 
or it's an A, then it's a B or a C, depending on how tightly wound those spiral arms are. So the more tightly wound they are, the closer it is in here, the more open they are, the further it goes out here. For a barred spiral, it's S, B, S for spiral, B for barred, and then same A, B, and C classifications. The elliptical galaxies are classified E for elliptical. You know something's going to have to go wrong here, right? Uh, and then they're classified by how flattened they are. You can go from those that are perfectly spherical, which are E0, down to an E7. No E8s, no E9s. E7 would be more like a football shaped. It's about how flat they get. They don't get really flat disks like the spiral galaxies. So they, they, these get much, much, these get much flatter. These are flattened down to a pancake size. The other ones, you know, football shape is about as, as flat as they get for an elliptical galaxy. But they're classified E0 through E7. We don't show each one in there, but that would be the classification. And then in between are what we call the lenticular galaxies. No, they're not L. That's the one that's got to be different. It's S0. They have some properties of both types of galaxies that we'll look at coming up. They're disk galaxies like the spirals, but they have their stellar properties are closer to the elliptical. So they're kind of an in-between structure. And there's also, not shown on there, are the irregular galaxies, which are irregular. They don't really fit any other kind of classification. They're not a nice, smooth blob of stars. They don't have any kind of spiral structure to them. So there's something, there's something different about those. So what I want to do here is go through a little bit about each of these, if it'll let me. I guess I have to say yes or no. I didn't really want to say, but anyway. <laughs> All right, so spiral galaxies are the first type. And this is an example of a spiral galaxy. We're looking face down on it. And we can see the central areas, just like we saw with our galaxy last time. Spiral arms spreading out from it. Actually, a second galaxy over here that may be in the process of a collision. When we look at these, we see they have a distinct structure to them. You see any spiral galaxy has a distinct spiral pinwheel type structure to it. And it has those same properties. It has a flat disk. It has a central bulge. It has a halo around it. Let's see if I'm causing the trouble. And spiral arms. Now, obviously, if it doesn't have spiral arms, it's not going to be a spiral galaxy. That's one of the things that it has to have. One of the other keys that every spiral galaxy has is star formation. Stars are forming in these galaxies. That's not going to be true in every galaxy. So it means that we see when we look at especially the spiral arms, we see emission nebulae associated with star formation. We see young clusters of stars associated with star formation. And we can see that those are going on in the spiral arms. And we know that it's ongoing. It has to be recent because many of those stars that give off that blue light, they only live a million years, two million years. So if something only lives, say, two million years, it had to have formed in the last two million years or it would be gone. Right? Any star that lives two million years that formed a billion years ago, dead. Long dead, right? It only lasts two million years. It must have formed within the last two million years. And some of the stars, of course, are even younger than that. So we're seeing ongoing star formation in the spiral galaxies. And they also have some old stars. So in the bulge, in the halo, which you can't really see in the image here, 
Uh, the bulge around the central portion, the halo would be a spherical region around it, uh, would be, uh, again, would be something that we would see. Uh, we'll, we'll see that that shows that stars formed, not all, not, not still forming, but they formed over a long period of time. So not just that they're still forming, but they formed billions of years ago, they're still forming, and they're continuing to form. So it's been an ongoing process in these type of types of galaxies. So that's one of the key things that we note from them is that stars are currently forming, and that has to do with some of their structures, has to do with why we see the blue stars, why we see the pink hydrogen regions. The second type, again, another spiral galaxy, are the barred spirals. The only difference between that and that is this bar of stars going through the center. Why are some barred and some not? Great question. I can't tell you. It's something that's still being researched. Why do some galaxies have a bar and others do not? It actually, we call them normal spirals and barred spirals sometimes, but there's really nothing abnormal about a barred spiral galaxy. They're about equal. In fact, well, actually, I give you the number there. It's about two-thirds of them have a bar. So technically, the barred spirals are the normal galaxies. And the abnormal ones, the more unusual ones, would be what we call an ordinary spiral galaxy or the non-barred galaxies, non -barred, you could have spiral galaxies and non-barred spiral galaxies. But why it's there, we have no clue. Why do some galaxies form, you know, this distinct structure going through it, there's almost like a line, a big bar of stars that goes through it, and then the spiral arms come off the end of the bar. There's still a lot about the dynamics of galaxies that we don't understand, and how galaxies form. How galaxies form, I mean, I can give you some ideas as to why they form the spiral structure, I talked last time about density waves as terms of how we can perpetuate the spiral structure. But there's a lot here that we are still trying to understand. Um, otherwise, I'm not going through the details. There's, they're the same properties. It's got the bulge. It's got the disk. It's got the central portions. It's got the halo. It's got spiral arms. The only difference between the two is that the spiral arms come off the end of the bar rather than kind of winding down into the center as they did here. You can see the spiral arms winding down to the center. Here they do not seem to do that. They don't wind all the way down, they kind of stop right here at the bar, and then they begin. So it's a little bit different than an ordinary, what we call an ordinary spiral galaxy, which is actually a small fraction of the actual galaxies. Now, I talked a little bit about the classification before. I'll give you a little bit more detail on that. How do we classify a spiral galaxy? Well, S for spiral or capital S, capital B for barred spiral. So it's either spiral or spiral with the bar. And then we use the letters A through C after that. So the galaxies with an A, lowercase a, have the largest bulge and the most tightly wound up spiral arms. So in those cases, the spiral arms are wound really tight, whether they're regular or they come off the end of a bar. The galaxies that are C-class out here have very tiny bulges and have very loosely wound spiral arms. Those are the two differences that we see between the classifications is how the size of the bulge, how big that is, and how tightly wound the spiral arms are. Again, we're still at an early stage with this. When we, when we first classified stars, we classified them based on their hydrogen lines, how strong the hydrogen lines were.
It wasn't until later that we got the physical understanding that said, hey, this is because of the temperatures of the stars. And that's what we're really classifying. So there may be more going on here that tells us why stars form in one of these three. But we don't really have that understanding yet. For us, we are, we are in a barred spiral galaxy. So our Milky Way is actually classified as an SB, lowercase b, which would put us in the middle range. Not a really large bulge, not a small bulge, kind of in between those two. And arms are you know, not super tightly wound, not super wide open, kind of in between. There are also subclassifications within this that I won't go into too much, but there are some cases where it's borderline and they'll call it an SAB galaxy. Well, it's not quite an A, it's not quite a B, it's kind of in between them. So I don't want you to get the idea that it's just you know, three distinct types. There's obviously a variation between them. This is just the level of classification that we are at right now, which will classify it as an SA, an SB, or an SC. All right, so spiral galaxies. And again, those are, those are the pretty ones. Those are the ones you see pictures of all the time. Elliptical galaxies, a lot blander. This is an example of an elliptical galaxy. Did I say which one? Come on. I'm trying to make sure nothing else is hitting there. All right, so elliptical galaxies just look like a big blob of stars. There's the central region. Essentially, it's all a bulge. There's no disk, no spiral structure, no spiral arms of any kind. It's essentially either spherical or a squashed sphere, squished down sphere. But no trace of spiral arms. We don't see any of that. We don't see any disk. We don't see any dust. No young stars. We don't see any emission nebulae. We don't see any signs of star formation. So we don't see any way that the star, that stars are currently forming within these. So no sign of star formation. Essentially, in an elliptical galaxy, it looks like stars formed several billion years ago, 10 billion years ago, and that's it. All, the, all it's been doing is going through its life. Those stars have been aging since then. So there's been no other star formation since then, whereas a spiral galaxy has been going through constant new star formation. Elliptical galaxies had this great burst of star formation early on, and then nothing. So when you see pretty pictures of galaxies, people don't usually photograph the elliptical ones because they're a lot blander. But they come in a big, try that again, a big variety of sizes, and those are they can have the giant ellipticals, which are the giant galaxies, the largest galaxies that exist. And there are dwarf ellipticals, which are the smallest galaxies, not much bigger than a globular cluster. So they come in a very big range of sizes. Spiral galaxies, on the other hand, you've got our Milky Way. You might find a spiral galaxy that's maybe half the size of our Milky Way. You might find one that's maybe twice the size of our Milky Way but you're not gonna find one that's a, hundred, a spiral galaxy 100 times the Milky Way size. They don't exist. Or one 100th. Whereas elliptical galaxies, you do see that. You see ones that are, you can see things that are hundreds of times bigger or hundreds of times smaller. So that is, you do see a much wider range of sizes than you see with the uh, spiral galaxies. Now to classify an elliptical, again, we use the letter E for elliptical. 
makes it easy to remember. And then we use the numbers zero through seven, which just tells us how squished it is. E0 is not squished at all, nice big sphere of stars. Whereas an E7 is maybe a football shape. So flattened down a little bit. This one goes down to E6. It would go slightly flatter than that. But they're still very extended compared to the flatness, a flat pancake, flat, almost a piece of paper for these spiral galaxies. So they're classified E0 through E7. And that's, again, just based on their appearance. All this classification is still based on their appearance. Now, it might have been thought at one time that this is how galaxies evolved and changed over time. And you could think, you know, maybe it made some kind of sense that you could go from an elliptical galaxy that was collapsing down and would eventually form, you know, a lenticular galaxy and then form a, maybe form a spiral galaxy. That's kind of a big jump to be able to do. Where do you get the gas and dust from that didn't exist before? But you could think of that as maybe as some kind of evolutionary sequence. And that early on, that's maybe what we thought. Now it's simply just a classification scheme, just a way of organizing the galaxies. Now, that's the two main types. That's the spirals and the ellipticals. The other types are the irregular. Irregular is just a blob of stars, but not an organized blob. Okay. I don't know what I'm... Make sure nothing is... Try again. Okay, not an organized blob of stars, just a blob of stars. Something's got to be hitting somewhere there. Okay. Um, they do contain gas and dust, meaning we have star formation going on in them, so we'll still look a blue color. So they contain old and young stars. They're classified as IRR for irregular. There's also a couple different subclassifications within that I don't really want to go into. But there are some, there are some differences to with, with the irregularities. There's irregular one and irregular two. Uh, there's a couple different ways to classify them. But it's just an irregular collection of stars. It doesn't follow any distinct pattern. It's got no spiral structure to it. And it's not uniform and spherical or ellipsoidal like the elliptical galaxies. So it's just an irregular concentration of stars, you know, as we might guess based on its name. These are actually some of the most common galaxies early on in the history of the universe. This is what most galaxies probably looked like. Because when we look back to those galaxies as they looked right after the Big Bang, most of them looked like this. They looked small and they looked blue and they didn't have any spiral, any spiral structure to them. The spirals and the ellipticals that we've already looked at really didn't fit this kind of pattern. Now, the last group, so there's five different groups. There's two types of spirals, ellipticals, irregulars, and then there's the lenticulars that don't really fit in. Those are the ones that are classified differently. Uh, those are a disk galaxy, so they're flattened down like a pancake, but they have no gas or dust. So they got properties of both objects. They have, they're disk galaxies like a spiral, and they have no gas or dust and no star formation like an elliptical. So they're kind of a cross between the two. They don't fit as an elliptical because they're way too flat. And they are classified as either S0 or SB0. It means they can have a bar. So this would be, a, this would be an ordinary lenticular. 
This would be a barred lenticular. You wouldn't have any spiral arms coming off from the bar, but you, would, you can see some where you see a distinct bar. It's not just uniform down to the center there. There's actually a bar going through this. So we could have two different types of lenticular galaxies. The S0, the SB0, those are the ones, if you're thinking of classifications, that, that, that aren't easy to remember. You've got S's for spirals, E's for ellipticals, RR for irregular, and then you've got S0 or SB0. And if you look at their classification scheme, it's actually a, it's also a cross between spirals and ellipticals. They're given a zero, sort of the way the uh, ellipticals are given numbers, but they use the S or the SB that are associated with spirals. All right, so what does this mean, and what does it mean for galaxy evolution? Well, it's changing on there, it's not changing on here. I don't want to say it. There we go. So what do we mean? This is what we once thought, that this was some kind of way that galaxies evolved. Come on. Well, luckily, we're not on a whole lecture day today, so we'll get through, struggle through as much of this as we can. Um, that this might have been a way that galaxies could evolve, but the problem is you really can't do it either way easily. I mean, it's, it's easy to imagine how it, maybe an elliptical could collapse. It was a sphere, and it starts to collapse down, and it flattens, and maybe even becomes an S0 galaxy. But how do you all of a sudden make millions of solar masses of gas and dust appear so you can form stars? How do you go from having nothing that can form stars to being able to form stars? So think about it going the other way. You could have stars, well, they, they, the spiral arms wind up and then they disappear and you've used up all the gas and dust. But how do you make something expand? How do you take something that's a flattened disk and unflatten it? That's not something that normally happens in nature. Things collapse down to a disk, they don't expand. So how can a spiral uncollapse? You can imagine part of it going there, maybe as part of it evolutionary, but there's no easy way to say that a spiral becomes an elliptical or an elliptical becomes a spiral over a natural course of evolution of galaxies. So we do believe that galaxies evolve and that you can change spiral galaxies into elliptical galaxies. One of the things we talked about at the end of the class last time was the collision coming up between us and Andromeda about three billion years from now. The calculations show that that will end up probably producing an elliptical galaxy. So we may be part of an elliptical galaxy that during that, you know, that collision, all the gas and dust will get used up, and then we will turn into an elliptical galaxy. But you can't normally do it. A galaxy sitting there by itself that's flattened down isn't all of a sudden going to expand outward and get thicker and thicker. That will not happen. But there are some ways to imagine it through collisions, that two massive galaxies colliding together could stir up the stars enough, could produce enough energy in order to maybe convert spirals into ellipticals. So naturally, there's just no way to find that you can go from one end to the other, which might have been the thought earlier on. Now we think that galaxies evolve, but through collisions. Okay. So if we can, let's see, try to finish up this section. Galaxies, we've got five types. 
So spiral, barred spiral, irregular, elliptical, lenticular. Those are the five types, and we subdivide those. And they don't evolve from one type to the other as best we can tell. They're formed with one. Any evolution seems to be through the collision of galaxies, galaxy mergers, galaxy collisions that occur that we'll be looking at over the coming chapters. Questions? All right. Well, let's look at the masses of the galaxies and how we can determine that. And I showed something very similar to this last time for our galaxy. How do we determine the mass of a distant galaxy? Well, our only way, well, one of our, one, our best way right now is to look at, is to use Kepler's third law. If we can find something orbiting, a distant star orbiting around the outskirts of the galaxy, we can use Kepler's laws from its motion, how fast is it moving, we can get the orbital period, we can get its distance, and we can then determine its mass. We can also look at the, so the rotation of objects within a spiral galaxy. Within an elliptical galaxy, it's a little bit harder because there's not any regular ordered rotation. Things are just moving around. We can look at the broadening of the lines, which gives us the range of velocities. And some of the things that we know is that whatever we find out, the galaxies have to be able to hold themselves together because galaxies exist. So there has to be enough mass there to hold the galaxy together and keep it from flying apart. But some of the things that we observe when we look at the velocities of a galaxy as you go further and further out, we're not finding what we expect. Based on what we see with visible light, we can trace out the galaxy, we can trace out the stars, we can trace out the gas and dust. We expect that the rotation would do something like this, that Things would speed up a little bit as you're still getting inside some of that mass. But once you got outside all of the mass of the galaxy, things should slow down. Stars should start to move slower. So things should go slower and slower, just like they do in our solar system. Mercury orbits the fastest. Neptune of the planets orbits the slowest. It's further away. So as it's further away from the central mass, you'd expect it to go slower and slower. And that's what we would expect for stars, gas, things that are further out. It's not what we observe. The observation we make is up here. And things, not only are they not slowing down, they're speeding up. The stars further out are moving around faster than the stars in close. I mean, that would be a shock if Neptune were moving faster at a higher velocity than Mercury. It's far away from the sun. It would, should be moving a lot slower, and it is. But these stars, which are way outside the visible part of the light, so stars and gases, you get further and further out, seem to be moving faster and faster and faster. And what that tells us is there has to be some source of mass, some extra gravity that is further out, that is not part of the luminous part of the galaxy that we see. So there is actually got to be something more. This is what we call dark matter. And I touched on it last time, and we'll come back and talk about it a little bit more later on. But what we find is that there, for every bit of matter that we see, there's got to be 20, bit, 20 bits of matter like that outside the galaxy, out here, in order to account for what we're seeing. I mean, this is the observation. The stars are moving faster and faster, and you've got two choices. Either there's a lot of dark matter out there, 
you know, 20, 30, 40 galaxies worth of dark matter, or gravity's wrong. Or gravity doesn't work the right way when you get to that kind of scale. We look at both. Right now, the consensus of astronomers is that the dark matter is what's causing it. Unless we come up with some better form of gravity that will explain, explain this. But we definitely see something that's not what we would expect. There has to, so right now, we say that there has to be a lot more matter outside of the visible part of the galaxy, which would end right about in here. Maybe the visible part ends there. It should, so we'd expect it to start to drop. Things should move slower. All the mass is to the interior. That's when things start to slow down. They're still speeding up. That means each star, there's still more mass outside of it. You're still gathering more and more mass in as you move further and further out. going to leave that there because that's usually where it's most stable. <laughs> At least you don't get the flickering of things on the screen until I can figure out what's going on there. Uh, range of masses. Um, ellipticals have the widest range. So this is, this is a table from your textbook. You can get it from there if you like. Uh, spirals are pretty close. Maybe a factor of a thousand in mass between the smallest and the largest. Diameters, maybe a factor of 10 at the most. Our galaxy is right around 100. But you don't really get things much. The smaller ones are really rare, but maybe 50% larger is about as big as you get. Much bigger ranges for the ellipticals, going down to much smaller than spiral galaxies to much, much larger. So elliptical galaxies have a much bigger range of not only mass, diameter, luminosity, everything. So there's a big difference with, the, with these. And irregulars tend to be smaller than most of these. Uh, definitely smaller than the typical spiral or the typical elliptical galaxy. Uh, populations, ellipticals have just old stars. They form stars once and that's it. So they only have old stars. They formed stars 10 billion years ago. After a few billion years, all you've got left are old stars. All the young blue stars have died. Whereas spirals and irregulars are still forming blue stars. Um, gas and dust, again, present here in the ellipt spirals and irregulars, not in the ellipticals. Mass to light ratio I'm going to talk about in a little bit, so we don't worry about that yet. I'll talk about that on the next slide. So there is a big range, but it's much bigger for ellipticals than it is for spiral galaxies. Now the mass to light ratio, whoops. Come on. The mass to light ratio, what do we mean by that? All it does is it takes the mass of an object in solar masses and divides it by the luminosity in solar luminosities. So how much mass does it have? How many solar masses worth of mass does it have? How many solar luminosities of light is it giving off? And you divide those two and you get the mass to light ratio. So easy example is our sun. Our sun has a mass of one solar mass. It has a luminosity of one solar mass, a solar luminosity, and one divided by one is one. So our sun would have a mass to light ratio of one. We're using our sun as the standard to compare everything else to. So other stars would have different mass to light ratios. They might have more mass than our sun, or they might have more luminosity, and they could have different mass to light ratios. But all it is is a comparison. So something with a very high mass to light ratio has a lot of mass, very little light. 
with a low mass, or sorry, with a high mass to the other way around. I'm sorry. High mass to light ratio. If you've got a lot of mass, if it's a big number, then you're going to have a lot of mass and very, yeah, a lot of mass and very little light. If you have a lot of light and very little mass, you're going to get a very a small mass to light ratio. And what we're finding for these, if we look at examples of other stars, this is for our sun, what would we find for other stars? Well, a low mass star. Well, they're lower mass than our sun, but luminosity drops off a lot faster than the mass. So a star that is half the sun's mass is not half its luminosity. One-tenth, one-one-hundredth its luminosity. So the mass-to-light ratio is going to be very big. It's contributing a lot of mass relative to the amount of light that it's contributing. So low-mass stars are actually, you know, might not think of it that way, but low-mass stars are actually contributing a lot, of, a lot to the mass-to-light ratio of a, of a galaxy. They're giving lots of mass relative to the amount of light they get. High-mass stars might have more mass than the sun, but again, might be 10 times the sun's mass. It doesn't give off 10 times its luminosity. It might be 10,000 times its luminosity. So they're giving off a lot of light relative to their mass. And that's why we look at it as a, as a ratio. They're going to have a really small mass-to-light ratio. Yes, they're adding some mass, but compared to the amount of light they're giving off, it's, it's, it's negligible. They're giving off a lot of the light of the galaxy. And in fact, when we look at things like spiral galaxies, we're seeing all these high-mass stars that are giving off light. And what you do is if you want to find the mass-to-light ratio of a galaxy, you just have to add up everything that you see. What is the mass-to-light ratio of the objects that compose it? So for younger galaxies, things like spiral galaxies, things like elliptical, uh, sorry, not elliptical galaxies, like irregular galaxies, maybe 1 to 10 range. So like our sun. Older galaxies, it seems to be a lot higher. They've got a lot older stars. They don't have those bright young stars. So their mass-to-light ratio is going to be higher. This is based on just what we see. So this is just observations of the galaxies adding up all those stars within it. What we find when we look at dark matter is that these apply to the inner parts. This applies to what we see in the inner portions of the galaxies. But most of the matter is invisible dark matter. That's, that's dark matter has lots of mass, many times the mass of the galaxy, but essentially no light. Well, if you divide something, divide some number by a really tiny number, as that number gets closer to zero, your mass to light ratio shoots up. Right? You can't divide by zero because things become infinite. But if you imagine dividing you know, billions of solar masses by 0 0.00001, you're making it even larger. You're making a really large mass-to-light ratio. So dark matter would have an extremely high mass-to-light ratio. And this is where we're going to start to see when we make measurements like this, we can start to calculate how much dark matter has to be there. Because we can figure out the mass, we can figure out the light, we can measure the light, how luminous it is, and that will give us a mass-to-light ratio. And we're finding out that when we calculate these, we calculate how much mass must be there based on observations of the rotation or the gravity within, those, within the galaxies, that the mass to light ratios have to be really high. And we're getting up to things that are 100. 
That's a lot bigger than just stars. That's a lot bigger than you know, anything else that we're going to add in there. Now, again, our sun would be one. You're adding in lots and lots of dark matter that has to be there because we're measure, we, so what we can measure. We can measure the mass through different methods. We can measure the light. And there has to be this large, large amount of dark matter. And it's really going to be very important for understanding the universe because it's going to affect how galaxies evolve over time. That's going to be a very important thing. Looking at this dark matter is going to be trying, important to understand how galaxies change over time. Now, as I mentioned last time, if we look at what we do, what we study, the visible light, that's all the nebulae, all the stars, anything ordinary matter, black holes, neutron stars, it's about 4% of the material in the universe. So 96% is between dark matter and another more mysterious one that we'll come to later called dark energy. That's most of the universe. Very little of the universe is actually the ordinary matter, which is the stuff you and I are made up of. That's a tiny fraction of what the universe is apparently composed of. A lot more of it is this dark matter. All right. So looking a little bit at the distance scales we want to talk about, we talked a little bit about distance scales within a galaxy, right? Spectroscopic parallax, regular parallax, uh, our Lyrae stars, Cepheid variables, etc., that we looked at for being able to determine distances. Now we've got to use distances to galaxies. Well, we're stuck here. We've got to use some, we've got to start building on what we've got. Because even with Gaia, we talked about in terms of measuring lots of parallax, it's not going to come close to measuring the parallax of a galaxy. Not going to be able to see that. Galaxies much too far away. And even Gaia was only getting a certain you know, third of the way through our galaxy or so. So we're not going to be able to use parallax. It is only in the closest galaxies that we can actually see individual stars. All those pictures I showed you of galaxies, we're seeing the combined light of the stars. We can't pick out individual stars. So we can't use something like spectroscopic parallax because I can't see that one star to get its individual brightness. We can use, in some of the nearer ones, for we can see Cepheid variables. This is kind of our connection between scales within our galaxy and scales without. So one thing we can really see in some nearby galaxies are Cepheid variables. So of close galaxies, you might be able to pick out some individual stars, identify them as Cepheids. Then great, you can use the period luminosity relationship and determine the distance just as you would within our galaxy. So this is really important for being able to do this. This is what Hubble did back in the 1920s. Found some Cepheid variables there, measured their period, got their luminosity, calculated their distance, said, hey, that's way outside our galaxy. Now, any estimate of our galaxy is, not going, is going to be much, much larger. It's much, much smaller than that. But again, it only works for the nearest galaxy. So how do we find the distances to galaxies that are much further away. This works for close ones, galaxies that are, can't remember what I gave you, 60, did I give you 60 million light years, 50, 60 million light years to see Cepheids? Talked about that a while back. Uh, that sounds tremendous in terms of distance, but when we're starting to talk about billions of light years away, 60 million is still relatively close to us. And we're starting to get to 10 and 12 billion light years away you're not going to begin to be able to see Cepheids. 
So we need some other methods. And what we're looking at are, one of the things we look at are what are called standard bulbs or standard candles. So a standard bulb, by what we mean that, is that they're objects of the same luminosity. When we looked at variable stars, our, our Lyrae stars were one of these. They were all the same brightness. You identified one, you knew how luminous it was, you knew how bright it appeared to be. That comparison gives you the distance. So we want to look for others of these. <clears throat> we want to look for other standard bulbs to be able to compare because if they have the same luminosity, right? if I have two light bulbs, one here and one you know, 1,000 feet away, the only difference between how the bright they look to you is because of the distance. This one's you know same number, same wattage, same wattage. They're going to look. They're, they're giving off the same amount of light, and if they were at the same distance, they'd look as bright. So the only differences are how far away they are. That allows us to determine the distance because you know they're standard. Now, if you didn't know that they were standard, right? You know, a hundred watt bulb versus a twenty-five watt bulb. Then there's a difference in intrinsic brightness. So that's why we look for things that are standards, that are all exactly the same, so that we can use those to determine distances. If they're all different brightnesses, right? elliptical galaxies can have a variety of sizes, variety of brightnesses. We can't really use them as a standard. They're all different. Is it a big galaxy further away? Is it a smaller galaxy that's close to us? They might look the same. They might look the same brightness. So once we do this, if we find some of these standards, then we know the luminosity because we've identified the object. And we can use that and the apparent brightness to determine the distance. The big one of these that we use, oh, there we go again, are the type 1 supernovae. And in fact, very specifically, what they call the type 1a, they're actually subdivided too. If you remember, type 1, that's the exploding white dwarf. So it is a white dwarf star that was 1.4 times the mass of our sun that exploded. The key with these is that because they're all the same, it was the same object that exploded. It wasn't like a type 2 where it might have been a 20 solar mass star or a 30 solar mass star or a 40 solar mass star. Those might do slightly different things. They might get to bigger, bigger or less brightnesses. These are all exactly the same. The star that exploded was a star that was 1.4 times the mass of the sun. So theoretically, that says they should all reach the same peak brightness. Same thing that's exploding. It's just like having a 100-watt bulb here and a 100-watt bulb further away. They're going to look just the same brightness. The nice thing with these is that they are so bright that they can be detected out to 8 billion light years. Not the edge of the universe, but you're getting pretty darn close. The universe is about 13.8 billion years old, so 13 point, you can't go much over, can't really go over 14 billion years just to round it off. Well, we're getting out eight, we're getting out you know, two thirds of the way to the edge of the universe using these. That's a big jump over 60 uh, million light years. So these are really important for determining distances. The good thing, that's a good thing about them is that they're nice and standard, we find one, in a distant galaxy, you know, here's an example. You know, in 2000, March of 2012, nothing. July of 2012, there's this bright object that appeared. That was a star exploding. We can identify it as a type 1 supernova, figure out its peak brightness, and say, there we go, we've got a distance to that galaxy. Okay. 
Well, exit. I'm going to finish up this section and we'll stop. Finish up this section and we'll stop so we can get on to lab anyway. But once we can do that, we can get the distances. The bad thing is you've got to wait for it to occur in a galaxy. If I want to determine the distance to this galaxy, I've got to sit there and wait and twiddle my thumbs for millions of years maybe waiting for one of these to go off. So I can't just say, oh, I want to find out how far this galaxy is away. But when they do go off, we can automatically get the distance. And they're relatively common. I mean, we get a number, good number a year. So it's not like you only have to wait years and years to see them at all. But you, ha you can't pick out any specific galaxy. And even these, we're looking at some really distant galaxies. This is the galaxy we're actually looking at there. Really distant galaxy out there uh, you know, compared to some of the other ones around this area. Now, some of the other methods that we use to determine distances are, these are a couple others that we use as well, kind of as intermediaries. One is called the Tully-Fisher relationship, which just says that these two astronomers found that there was a, re a rough relation between how bright a spiral galaxy was, its luminosity, and how fast it was rotating. So a more luminous one rotates faster, a less luminous one rotates more slowly. And that works out pretty well. It fits about as well as, say, the Cepheid uh, period luminosity relationship. It's the same kind of thing. So all you're measuring is the spin of this spiral galaxy, measuring its velocities, of its stars, that's easy to do through the Doppler effect. And then that gives you, once you do that, you say, okay, it's spinning so much, that's the velocity, and then I can say, okay, it has some luminosity. Once you get the luminosity and the apparent, luminosity, the apparent magnitude, you can then say the distance. So it gives us another way to distance that only works for spiral galaxies. Um, the other one we can look at the 21 centimeter hydrogen line, if there's hydrogen gas in it, you can use that to determine luminosities. So you measure the rotation speed through that. The problem with this is that it only limits to spiral galaxies. Well, spirals and lenticulars that rotate, it doesn't work for things like elliptical galaxies. So it's kind of intermediary between and helps you kind of fit things in between those distances. It's nice because you don't have to wait for a supernova to go off. As long as it's a spiral or lenticular galaxy, you can measure its rotation and figure out its, uh, figure out its, dis its distance. But you're limited to certain types of galaxies. It's not going to help you with an elliptical galaxy, which are a large number of galaxies in the universe. So let me finish up this section, and then we'll hope that this is not quite so uh, flaky on Monday. <laughs> um, the masses of the galaxies, we can determine them. One way is using Newton's version of Kepler's third law to determine the masses. We looked at the mass to light ratio to be able to compare the amount of mass. And for the sun, that's one. For other objects, it can be more or less than one. And what we're seeing is that it tells us that there's a lot of dark matter out there that we'll be talking about in the next chapter, I believe. And the distances to galaxies we can use a couple of different things, Cepheid variables are one that works for the relatively nearby galaxies or standard bulbs like the type 1a supernovae that we can use out, not quite to the edge of the universe. There's one more distance measurement that we have to talk about that I'll talk about on Monday as we finish up these, these couple of chapters. So now it decides to be good. <laughs>
Questions? Oh, no, there it goes again. All right. Well, let me.